0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker and I'm Leon Gettler and this is episode six in our series for 2015 and today's date is Friday the 13th of March. Black Friday, Leon. And on Black Friday, what do we got?
1: Well, on Black Friday, we're starting off with an interview with Tim Heasley. He uh, runs Venture Crowd. That's Australia's original equity-based crowdfunding platform. He's going to have a fascinating chat to us all about venture capital and crowdfunding.
0: That would be very interesting. You know, need a, a bit of that. There's a lot of crowdfunding going on.
1: That's right. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Kikoulis, and he's going to be talking to us all about the intergenerational report and its impact on the 2015 budget.
0: I wonder what sort of impact that'll be, depending on what the budget's like. Absolutely. Okay, so let's listen to Tim Heasley. Tim Heasley, uh, tell us about venture crowd. Who are the, who are the
1: outfits you've funded so far?
2: Uh Ventura, we funded uh in the first deal we funded, that was a one point million raise. We had about 50 investors in that, and that closed in about three days. Pretty popular deal.
1: And do you have any others lined up?
2: Yes, we do. We've announced Fame and Partners. That closed last week. That was a $50,000 deal that had eight investors, and that was part of a broader raise through Sydney Angels, who invested alongside Venture Crowd and the Sydney Angels Sidecar Fund and then we've got another three deals uh, that should be announced before Christmas.
1: Uh, what's the... I mean, the, the venture capital theme in Australia has been criticised as being insufficient. I mean, what's your view of it?
2: Insufficient. Um, well,
1: companies well, are saying they, don't, they can't give money.
2: Well, they will, won't they? I think if you're raising capital, there's never enough around, and I think there are, there are plenty of cases of companies that have been unable to raise money. In our... In our I suppose our experience you know, over the last five or six years, we see that it's pretty rare for a good investable deal uh, to be unable to raise money. So I think there's a there's a, an element of, you know, the good deals get funded and some of the others just don't or have to work a lot harder anyway.
0: Tim, do you think that the current economic situation is making people cautious about uh, investing?
2: I think that's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot of risk capital in Australia that's previously found its way into junior miners and explorers. That is now no longer going there and is now looking for a home. I'm not sure that the alternatives of putting that money in cash or into the equity equity market are terribly appealing to the people, uh, you know, to the owners of that capital. Uh, So I, I would have thought early stage VC... Uh, you know, invested in with a proper strategy would be very appealing. So I'm not sure that there's there's a great deal of caution as long as you're tapping the right sectors.
1: So what sectors would you be looking at in, investing in?
2: Okay, so Artesian has a co-investment model whereby we invest alongside partners, and those partners are angel groups, incubators, accelerators, universities. Anyone with a really good deal flow who's seen good a good, good number of early stage opportunities and that has uh, good, robust filtering capabilities, and that's not so much the ability to pick winners at that early stage, but the ability to screen out those that aren't ready for investment or aren't ready to go through their incubator or accelerator. So our model is to invest a lot in, into the opportunities that come through these filters, so to that extent, we are reasonably agnostic as to what we invest in. If, it's inve- if, if other people are willing to put their their capital at risk into these opportunities, then we will follow.
0: So is IT uh, higher on the list?
2: IT is higher on the list, not through any conscious decision that we've made, but because there are more of those opportunities around, because they are capital efficient, highly scalable businesses. Um, they have a, typically a shorter time to exit than say clean tech, biotech, med tech, uh, which are the sort of comparable um, early stage VC areas and they, there's probably less regulator, regulatory overlay with with IT or digital, so therefore there are fewer hurdles in the way of success.
1: Would your preference then be towards IT? Would you be naturally inclined to go for IT companies?
2: We do go for IT companies, but that's because they are the opportunities that are coming through our partners. Yeah, the risk of being repetitive, we're reasonably agnostic as to what we're investing in, if provided other people are willing to put their capital at risk in those opportunities.
0: How about somewhere like agriculture, this sort of thing, people say that's got a future.
2: Yeah, look, I think it's important to see that digital or, or IT or I C T or whatever term you to use is now more a, a horizontal rather than a vertical. You know, its disruptive capabilities are impacting all sorts of industries and quite traditional ones like agriculture, resources, sport, to name three that I think Australia has some edge in. So, yeah, to the extent there are good disruptive, scalable opportunities in agriculture or resources or sport, we we're be very interested in those.
1: Tell me, I mean, what does a company have to do to get funding from a VC?
2: Well, from our VC or from a traditional VC?
1: Well, let's let's start from your VC and then let's move to traditional VCs.
2: Okay. So, just just to drill down into the model, if it's coming through an accelerator, it has to be accepted into that accelerator program. Now, they typically have an attrition rate of greater than ninety percent, so they will. Uh, discard 90 out of 100 applications they receive and accept 10 of those into their program. So by that stage, there's been a fair amount of filtering done. And as I said earlier, not necessarily to try and pick the winners, but more so to exclude those that aren't yet ready to go. So if they're accepted into that program, then they'll be accepted for investment into our fund. With a more traditional VC, which tends to adopt more of a stock picking role, look, you've probably got to speak to the players in, the, in, in that sector. We, we, we don't, we don't like to try and pick winners. Um, our model is very much to adopt the portfolio approach. As I say, once those outliers or, or those that aren't ready for investment have been excluded, we will put a little in, into all of them and then we will continue to invest in those that demonstrate real traction with the passage of time. So we're not about trying to pick winners at the outset and anointing them and saying, you know, you are the future because frankly we have no idea.
1: Would the idea be for a startup company to go find itself some partners and accelerate?
2: Look, I, I think the accelerator incubator model is a really good one. It's not for every startup and we've invested in startups uh, that have we've picked up in our Sydney Angels sidecar fund, for example, that have not been through accelerators or incubators. And in GoGo, the disruptive taxi payments uh, app, which is moving more to a mobile payments platform, a general mobile payments platform, is a good example of that. So that didn't go through an incubator or an accelerator. The founder, Hamish Petrie, was an experienced entrepreneur, and and he didn't need that sort of support and guidance. But to startups where it's first time round, or you know they need assistance with you know business marketing, just general support. I think they're a very good model.
1: What would be the sectors to watch out for? The growth sectors in the startup to watch out for. Well, I,
2: th- I think there's a lot of excitement overseas with uh, what's loosely called the Internet of Things, or Industry 4.0, or effectively um, smart connected devices there's a lot of wearable devices there's a lot of computerization of manufacturing uh, anything that falls into those areas i think is is hot uh, machine learning um, we're starting to hear a bit about and i think we're going to hear a lot more about so i think anyone who's playing with machine learning is probably in a very investable area as i said i think sports tech is an area that australia has a real advantage in and that can be anything from things you consume to things that you wear that might make you swim or run faster wearable devices that measure your performance um australia is a very strong sporting nation as well as you know and 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 being a you know a wealthy nation has put a lot of time and investment into its sporting equipment so i think uh that's a that's a good area i think australia has natural advantages in, we mentioned earlier, agriculture and mining and exploring. I think any of those are, are worth watching.
1: Are there movements in those areas happening now in Australia? Y-
2: yes, there are, yeah. There's, I, I think there's development... There's, you'll tend to find less development in hardware, so when we talk about the Internet of Things or, you know, actual devices or, uh, as opposed to software, they're a lot harder to develop. They obviously, re- you know, rely on some sort of manufacturing capability off and offshore. All of that is difficult to manage and to control, so that's a, that's a harder path to go down, but the rewards are there if you, you know, if you're good enough. There's a, a group out of Geelong called the Sports Technology Network. I think that's working on trying to aggregate sports tech businesses or startups. I think they're well worth watching. Um, we've invested in a uh, a business called Fusion out of um, it's come through one of our Newcastle one of the accelerators we invest through out of Newcastle. They are looking at uh, replacing some of the workflow tools uh, for underground mines, um, moving them onto iPads off sort of you know um, our notepads and um, whiteboards. That, that's a really interesting development. So yeah, I, I think we'll increasingly see um, investment in all these areas.
1: Tim Heasley, thank you very much for your time.
2: Pleasure.
0: What do you think, Leon?
2: Well, I
1: do, th- I do think it's a future. Not a bad investment, and but it's interesting to see what people invest in that want back in return. So it's going to be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, well, they probably want more than a pound of flesh. That's right. Okay, now uh, Stephen
3: Kukulis.
1: Stephen Kukulis, the government came out with the intergenerational report last
3: week. What does it mean? the intergenerational report comes out every five years from the government of the day uh, and in it what they do is try to work out some of the longer run pressures on government finances <clears throat> I mean they look at the um uh, the state of the budget given demographic changes things like the aging population yeah you know, we're all living longer because of better and improved health care they take account of immigration levels which of course are important for Australia and based on current policy settings that is no policy change they have a Reasonably good estimate of what the budget deficit's going to be, what the uh, level of government debt's going to be. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of assumptions that go into that report, and it's yeah, it's a bit unfair to criticise Treasury or the government for those assumptions. They've got to have the framework somewhere to get those numbers. Um, but what the uh, the report is meant to do is just to focus the minds on you know, where the budget's going to be if we don't change taxes or if we continue to spend uh, the way that we currently are in terms of government spending.
1: What do we draw from the intergenerational report? There are all sorts of warnings about the ageing population and, uh, and debt. What, what's your reading of it?
3: There's a, the, the highlight of the report, I guess, was the deterioration of the budget in about 15 years' time. It's funny that if you look at the, the fine detail of the intergenerational report, you can see that up until 20. 30, so another 15 years, um, the budget deficit's only averaging about 1% of GDP, so it's not huge. And it's only after that when we get this uh, real uh, move through of uh, demographic older people Getting out of employment and into pensions and uh, high healthcare costs and those sorts of things, that the budget deteriorates. So to me, it highlighted that the budget challenge, if we can call it that, is not that great. You know, if over the next few budgets, if the economy is strong enough, the government can find um, you know half a percentage point of GDP saving in terms of uh, the net budget effect of spending and taxing decisions, then in a couple of years' time, the budget will. Being surplus or being balanced. And then after that, we've, we sort of fixed the problem for a few more years. So it doesn't really take that much in terms of some of the polishing initiative. And just by way of benchmark, half the percent of GDP is about, you know, eight, eight or nine billion dollars a year. So it says to me with the budget coming up in a couple of months, you know, if Mr. Hockey can find some legitimate savings and not spend it back in the economy, and in fact, um, maybe look at some more tax issues, superannuation and the like, then he may be all of a sudden be able to um, ensure that the budget trajectory in the next intergenerational report would be significantly different, even with small changes in current policies.
1: Do you expect this intergenerational report will affect the 2015 budget?
3: Look, I think it's a handy benchmark. I think it gives Mr Hockey the scope to say, well, you know, we've seen from the intergenerational report some of the pressures on the budget, and it allows him to uh, articulate what is... I wouldn't say a need, that's overstating the point, but the, the pressures to, just to keep the, a tight rein on spending and on tax policy. The only issue that comes into play there, of course, is the economy is quite soft at the moment. So there's this, uh, undoubted dilemma in Treasury as they're framing the budget to so, say, well, unemployment's going up, GDP's below trend, and just in the last few weeks we've seen, you know, disappointing labour market numbers and disappointing GDP numbers. So we, yeah, you know, we, we, don't want to over tighten policy when the economy's weak, but it does leave the scope for, um, Mr. Hockey just to, do something on the budget, just to tighten it up a little bit.
1: Nonetheless, I mean, the figures were very disappointing. I mean, 2.5% and over a six-month period Australia was growing at 8%, which is not much at all. It doesn't leave him much room, does it?
3: No. And that's the $64 question. This is where some of the policies that have a more medium term focus are probably better. You don't want to be taking money out of the economy or have the government taking money out of the economy where GDP's at two ish or even a little bit less as you touched on, uh, because you're gonna push the unemployment rate higher. But what you can do is frame policies that maybe only get a little bit of revenue now and not really impact on real GDP in the short term, but in two and three and four years time they start to kick in. Things like uh the petrol excise indexation, you know, this year it's only going to get about one hundred and fifty million, but in ten years time it's getting two billion a year as as the price uh, in the indexation gets scaled a little higher. They're the sort of policies that are sort of more towards the medium term issues that the intergenerational report touched on. There are other policies that can sort of address those issues too and they've just got to be very careful balancing between repairing the budget if that's the right word and not hurting the economy when it's already fragile and we know that you know, gosh iron ore prices are now below $60 a tonne and the pressures on the economy are really quite uh, acute at the moment.
1: And, and of course you've got unemployment rising which is, which is a worry. It's
3: a, it's a worry and linked to that, of course, we've got very, very low wages growth, which in a, in a curious way actually hurts the budget, of course. If um, people are only getting 2.5% wage increases on average, which is what the data is telling us, of course, you're not paying as much tax. You're only getting an extra little bit of money rather than a slightly bigger amount of money, which, of course, collects more tax. So yeah, the government, Mr. Hockey, as he's framing this budget and getting the advice from Treasury, is hearing that you know those numbers that came out, even at MyEFO in December, have probably deteriorated uh, somewhat since then because of the weaknesses in the economy and that all of a sudden the starting point budget deficits for the next couple of years at least are probably somewhere around five to seven billion a year worse off because of the weaker economy, weak wages growth, and these sorts of uh, indicators. So he's got a real dilemma if he wants to present, you know, a, a, a narrow budget deficit, if you like, without hurting the economy. And that's a tough challenge. It's a challenge that uh, former Treasurer Swan faced on two or three occasions and, uh, yeah, politically suffered for it.
1: The uh, the worry with the uh, intergenerational report was what the figures are projected on, on ageing. I mean, it's, it looks like what way out is there of that? I mean...
3: Well, gosh, th- th- this is the... The policy issue, the, the intergenerational report didn't really talk about policy solutions. It highlighted the issues. So we come back to a myriad of things. Do we start contemplating increasing the superannuation contribution? You know, it's stuck at nine and a half percent for the next five years and then only goes to 12 percent by 2025. If we had that being ramped up you know, more aggressively and sooner, then maybe, just maybe that the call on the, uh, on the age pension would not be as extreme. So that's one thing that can be looked at and that deals with people managing their own super. That's why the, the government's also proposing to lift the retirement age to 70 so that people are working for a few more years and not claim the public pension and, and until they're a little bit older because we're all living older, longer. And so they're the sort of issues that can be helped address it. The other one which is critically important that I think will be the dominant issue for, for some years to come, not just this budget and it's a, it's a genuine structural issue, is uh, actively in- Encouraging old workers to be employed to stay in the labor market again Treasurer Hockey touched on this But if you can find the occupations for old workers in their 60s and dare I say even in their 70s to be adding even on a part-time basis to the economy Earning a bit of money, not calling on the public purse and these sorts of things. And of, of course that does help the budget position. So, but it's a question of what are the occupations? Obviously you can't get old people being, you know, bricklayers and uh, gym instructors. Well, I don't think you can. Um, so it's a really, it's a, there's a really important structural question about what older workers can do and then increasing that workforce participation rate as well.
1: So how would the government go about increasing that workforce participation rate?
3: It's, a, it's about encouraging the skill the older workers to make sure that they've still got the skills that workers require. And it's, again, about getting, um I won't say explicit discrimination, but I guess implicit discrimination against older workers That uh, and workers in their older years also being willing to work as well. There's a sort of a bit of a reluctance of many people to uh, engage in work. So there's all of these sorts of questions that are really dominating and really um, influencing, if you like, uh the whole policy question. They're not easy solutions. Thankfully, we've got a bit of time to work them out. As in several years, and it won't just be this budget that's got to start the process. But they're questions that I think um, really have to be considered. They're difficult. You know, no one wants to work till they're too old. Everybody wants to sort of retire with plenty of money and good quality health services without having to pay too much out of their own pocket for it. That's part of the issue as well. It's a really uh, problematic issue that will require some, you know, difficult decisions to be taken, not just by this government, but probably the government after it as well.
1: And of course, uh, politically difficult decisions as well, I'd imagine.
3: Yes, by almost by definition, because you're taking money away from people or not giving it to them, and as we've seen, gosh, you know, that that's politically difficult to do unless you've got a compelling argument for it. So the politics comes into it now, and again, with the election now, well, eighteen months away or less, we're halfway through the um, the Abbott government's first term. They're going to be having even more of an eye on the polls um, you know the elections not that far away so they've got to be very careful not to from an already poor starting position the polls are very poor for them at the moment they've got to be very careful not to alienate um, the electorate even more and alas as an economist looking at these things that tends to be compromising on economic policy and you don't get the best policy response as a result.
1: So these are the challenges ahead over what period of time do you think they can do it? Look it would be nice to think uh,
3: that when there's, there's two things One is that I think it's going to be possibly a two-, three-, four-year exercise, and that includes tax reform. Remember, we've got the tax white paper coming out this year too, which will look at things like the GST, the tax treatment of superannuation and those sorts of things. That's the first part. So there are some structural changes that have to be put in place over the next couple of years. An extra thing, of course, um, uh, and that's the economic cycle. You know, we're not going to be growing below trend forever. Now, the moment that the outlook for the short term is that the economy remains weak and unemployment goes up. But with the lower dollar... Easier interest rates coming through from the Reserve Bank. Perhaps a little bit of a hint of a better uh, position in the global economy. You know, it's fragile at the moment, but, you know, the Eurozone is less bad. The U.S. is looking pretty good. They've had some nice job, job numbers in the last few months. But maybe in 2016 might be the year of a stronger economy. And as we saw during the, the latter part of uh, the period when Peter Costello was treasurer, strong growth, a stronger economy, delivers bucket loads of money to the government just through the automatic stabilizers kicking in. So there are some structural things that need to be addressed. But also we can expect in the next couple of years, we will have a couple of years of stronger growth. That will be a huge benefit to the budget when it occurs, if it occurs. But that's the problematic question. When will we get the economy back onto a stronger growth path? It won't be 2015. It's more likely 16 or 17.
0: Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. The intergenerational report is kind of as speculative as guesstimation in a lot of ways, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. And, uh, but, you know, there the, the are real issues about the ageing of the population and the shrinking of the workforce uh, yeah. and the shrinking of the tax base.
0: And shrinking of the tax base very seriously. And, of course, where real wages haven't increased in, what, three years? That's right. How do you calculate that? And, of course, the economy is is a little fragile right now. Yes, it is. But interesting, and Stephen's uh, analysis is fascinating. It's pretty spot on. So now, Leon, the news.
1: The interesting part is with China, their monthly trade surplus... Hit US sixty point six billion in February. That's a record for the world's second largest economy. Exports leaped forty-eight point three percent year on year to reach 169.2 billion. Imports fell to 20.5% to 108.6 billion. And the trade surplus rose above the previous record monthly high of US sixty billion recorded in January. Still analysts are pessimistic about the outlook for China's exports, and they blame the weak imports on falling commodity prices with stringent bank financing trade as also a factor. And I mean the the other interesting issue is that China is actually shrinking. It's uh, steel production. There was a sp- Deputy Secretary General, Li Xinjiang, was speaking to a Perth conference yesterday, and he said output will contract to an estimated 814 million metric tonnes in 2015. That's down from 823 million last year.
0: He's talking about gas and uh, that's coal. That's right,
1: So and that's going to have a big impact. Well, so, yeah. So, you know, China's a key driver of global growth, but its economy grew 7.4% in 2014. That's weakest for almost a quarter of a century. And all in show signs that this slowdown
0: is continuing. I mean, it's a serious effect on us, but it's also a global effect.
1: That's right. And of course, Gary, there's been a lot of excitement in the market this week over the surprisingly high reading for Chinese uh, February CPI, which came in at 1.4%, as opposed to the consensus forecast of 1%. And is this the cry went out? The beginning of a trend which will scotch fears of impending deflation for the world's second biggest economy. You have to be careful here, Gary, because the Chinese accredited... <laughs> With this Bon Mo, and that if something looks too good to be true, it probably is.
0: Yep, it's <laughs> certainly in China. And the problem is no
1: one knows why it's happened. I mean, they're saying it's because of the Chinese New Year celebrations, where everyone went back to their hometowns and drank and ate and accommodation went up. But if that's the case, then you've got New Year figures scotching, undermining the real the real figures.
0: I have to say that uh, might be uncharitable, but figures coming out of the uh, central uh, core of the Chinese government uh, are always a little bit uh, sus. I think.
1: Absolutely, yes, I think so. Now, um, European finance ministers are urging Greece to stop wasting their time in talks on their crucial bailout, as debt-stricken Athens warns of a possible referendum if its, report, if its reform plans are rejected. And Jürgen Düsselbohm, who's the head of the Eurogroup of ministers from the nineteen countries that use the euro, said Greece had to make concrete progress if it wants financial aid to be further extended. Now, Greek finance minister Yaris Varoufakis has been presenting Athens' latest plans for reform at its meeting with the Eurozone partners. And these include using tourists as amateur sleuths to crack down on tax dodgers, Gary.
0: Oh, wow. What a great idea. What
1: could possibly
0: go wrong with that? Not a sausage.
1: No. So anyway, as a result, the euro has dived to a new 11.5-year low against the US dollar, and Europe's main stocks have slumped as concerns about Greece has outweighed the impact of the European Central Bank launching its bond-buying program aimed at boosting the eurozone
0: economy. Down to 70 uh, euro cents. That's right. It's it's getting really down.
1: Now, employers across the US had 5 million job openings at the end of January. That's the most since January 2001, and it provides further hope that the labour market is on the mend. Openings have been rising across a range of industries. Professional and business services, healthcare, accommodation, food services have all seen opening rise. Now, on the other hand, mining and logging, um, which also includes a beleaguered US oil industry, has seen openings decline.
0: Is that even on the um, shale oil?
1: That's right. Now, to Australia, and prominent hedge fund Manager Crispin Oding from London says that economies depending on China, like Australia, are in grave danger of entering recession and demand problems, and is also warning of a global market shock. He's saying that's not too far away. Now, Odie, who's a founder of London-based Odie Asset Management, has taken a set against the Australian market and local currency, given his bearish outlook for Chinese growth. And he says the banks, Australian banks, are likely to have a bad time ahead of them.
0: So they're talking now about uh, boosting their reserves.
1: That's right. But it's talking about that. We, well, that's going to be quite
0: necessary. I think so.
1: Now, a wave of global energy acquisitions spurred by low oil prices could start within months. That's according to management consultant A.T. Carney. The prospect of increased oil and gas takeovers has been building companies with strong balance sheets and that would include here Woodside Petroleum, ExxonMobil, Mobil, Caltex, Beach Energy and Seven Group are hunting for bargains following a 50% slump in oil prices in the past six months. So A.T. Carney is saying
0: watch this space. Well, I think a lot of people are watching very closely.
1: Now, ANZ advertisements rose 0.9% in February to record their ninth consecutive monthly rise and job ads have now trended high for 16 consecutive months. They're up 2.2% over the year to February. ANZ chief economist Warren Hogan is still expecting the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates again. The official unemployment rate in Australia is now at a 12-year high of 6.4% and that's expected to remain either unchanged or maybe it might get better when the ABS releases their February data today. But I'm expecting to still stay around 6.4%. Now, uh, the Australian dollar has fallen to its lowest level in six years. It's actually dipped below 76 cents. It's now at 75.88 cents. The currency has been trading in a wide band from a high of 77.1%. One cent, and now it's to its weakest level in 2009 and this weakness is driven by momentum in the u s dollar that followed that strong jobs report that we talked about and the extent of that jobs markets has caught many off guard and raised the prospect of a rate hike of the u s in june and credit suisse i might add is saying the aussie dollar could fall below 60 cents
0: john cassell is going to like that
1: Absolutely, absolutely, from uh, Casella Wine. Treasure Joe Hockey's intergenerational report has been blamed for pushing a weekly consumer confidence measure to a three-month low. His warning that unsustainable spending on an ageing population was likely to hurt economic prosperity seems to weigh on consumer sentiment. That's according to ANZ and Chief Economist Warren Hogan, because the ANZ Roy Morgan consumer confidence measure for the first week of March fell to a three-month low of 110.3 points. That's below the barometer's 25-year average. Wow. The other interesting piece of news for the week, extraordinary, a bit of barnacle clearing, was the Abbott government saying it's going to scrap further budget cuts to the Australian automotive industry, reinstate at least $500 million for car manufacturers between now and 2017, when the last vehicles roll off the assembly lines at Holden Toyota. And the backflip comes as the government drops a range of contentious budget commitments that proved unpopular in the community and created internal tensions like the GP co-payment and below-inflation Defence Force pay rises. The government introduced legislation last year, reducing the amount of cap assistance it would provide under the Automotive Transformation Scheme by $900 million and shorten the scheme by three years. Now the savings to the government from the changes of the financial year 2014 to 2017 amount to about $500 million. but Industry Minister Ian McFarlane has been accused of kicking an own goal when he made the announcement. He really botched it up.
0: Having announced that they're withdrawing support, which has been contentious for years, then suddenly they see an election backlash from people who are likely worried about their, their jobs
1: in victoria and south australia
0: abbott is so much regarded as poison in south australia he didn't even go go there on his trip um, to mount Gambier. what do you want to do it for i mean you you've sort of inflicted pain on yourself saying you're ending the subsidization now you bring it back
1: It's it's not a good look it has not been a good look and i don't think it's going to get them extra votes at all
0: well no i mean they'd be far better off if they put a lot of that money into um relocation and job uh, training and all that sort of now
1: thing. the other thing that didn't get them much brownie points was their attitude on superannuation with the ABS stat showing the number of home loans granted in January falling 3.5% uh, to 51,396. Tony Abbott says his government has no plans to allow young people to use their super to buy their first home, but is happy for the idea to be debated. Now, over the weekend, Treasurer Joe Hockey said the super, super system could be used to help first home buyers. Now, Labor and industry groups have criticised the idea, saying it's going to push up house prices, erode retirement savings, and Prime Minister, however, described the proposal as perfectly good and receptible, one that's been adopted by countries like Singapore. Labor's Treasury spokesman, Chris Bowen, dismissed the idea as a thought Paul Keating, the key architect of Australia's compulsory super, said it was willful disruption of one of the best retirement systems in the world. Not even a thought bubble. The head of a government's financial system inquiry David Murray and former Treasurer Peter Costello said superannuation should be used for retirement, not for buying a house. Malcolm Turnbull came out last night and attacked the idea, which was interesting. He said it was
0: really bad.
1: And today, the Assistant Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has scotched the idea and said, there are no plans for
0: change, contrary to what's being talked about in the media. Get it, Gary? It's all the media's fault. It's all the media's fault. Yeah, no, Abbott didn't say it. Hockey didn't say it. No. Despite the fact I've got a recording of him saying it.
1: Now, the uh, RBA modelling, some interesting RBA. MBA modelling has found that lower interest rates is going to help Australian households withstand another GFC result in minimal losses for lenders and in a stress test to assess how households would financially withstand major shocks such as a recession, RBA showed a high level of resistance among Australian households and limited losses and the RBA discussion paper said that although household debt had risen from 40% in 1980s to 150% by the mid 2000s, that hadn't made households more fragile because debt remained concentrated among households that were best placed to service it. And finally the other the final bit of news, Gary, and this is one close to your heart, is that Apple has shown off its much-anticipated smart watch. As it looks for a new growth diver, the watch will be able to show the weather your schedule. It will. It can vibrate to notify you of a call, text, or other message. It has a fitness component, tracking your exercise or lack of it.
0: It can even tell you the time, Gary, a- and it's to within 50 milliseconds.
1: Apple plans a range of watches at different prices, starting at uh, US $349 or Australian $452. It's also going to sell a sell a stainless steel Apple Watch with a 38 millimeter case, beginning at $549. US. A watch with a 42 millimeter case will be $50 more. And Apple said the watch will have 18 hours of battery battery life. It'll be able to conduct phone calls. Apple showed how the watch could be used to receive notification, open hotel rooms and garage doors, and get song lyrics.
0: Uh, and never forget, there's a solid gold, 18-karat gold version, SNP really, 14000 Australian dollars.
1: You know, if you've got a lazy $14,000, it's something to spend on. That's right. Now, pre-orders for the watch begin on April the 10th, and the Apple Watch will be available in nine countries on April the 24th. And that for, the, for this week, Gary.
0: Good-o, Leon. We'll be back next week.
1: That's right. Next week, we've got a terrific interview with uh, Lee Parker, RMIT economic historian. And he's going to be talking to some interesting perspectives, which can shed some light on what's happening today. Indeed. Look forward to that. That's it for this week. And next, And you can stay tuned to us on Twitter at TalkingBizZZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, a safe week ahead, and we'll talk to you next week.